Hey, good evening. If you have a Bible with you, go ahead and grab that right now. And we're going to be in Philippians chapter 4 tonight, the fourth chapter, fourth and final chapter. Um, I'll be preaching tonight. Pastor Brian Williams will preach next week, and we'll wrap up our study on Philippians. We hope you've been challenged and encouraged uh, and really moved through our study of this book written from house arrest. But before we get in tonight, uh, I want to mention two things at the top, two things before we get into the text. And we are going to get into this text. And uh, if you know Philippians 4 at all, it's just so full of some of Uh, Maybe the most memorable verses and words in the book of Philippians. I know you're going to love it. I know you're going to be encouraged and challenged tonight. But before we do, I want to address two things. And and the first would be this. Uh, I know all of you listening, or I imagine all of you listening, uh, are eager and excited for whenever that day is that we'll be able to gather back here on campus. In this room on Thursday nights, uh, worshiping together. And uh, I know if you've been listening to the news, or even if you haven't been, it's almost impossible to know that uh, the president and the governor governor in the Los Angeles County and Ventura County, there's just been movement toward the day that we get to gather back together. And I know for some of you, you're wondering, okay, when's that day and when do we get to be together? And maybe you've heard on the news that churches can open and so you're starting to get anxious to get here. And I want you to hear this tonight. We hear you. We understand We are as excited as you are for that day where we are gathered together as the people of God, lifting up the name of Jesus, growing together. We we cannot wait for that. And I want you to know that that, that we as a church are are trying to navigate the complicated um, ways that it's going to take to get back here on this campus and and even the restrictions that are kind of placed upon that. And so as a YA, as a young adult ministry, I do want you to be aware. uh, If you think about what's been put in place is that there is a cap now uh, of 25% of your room, uh, which this room is massive, or 100 people, whichever is fewer. And so um, as we hit that, we realize our, our young adult ministry is running about 250, 300 people uh, and so gathering us together at this time is really just not something we can do right at this moment. And at the same time, our, our church is excited about the movement. Uh, and really, um, we're going to get to a place we believe and we're praying for sometime soon. We're hoping and believing and praying for that day where we get to gather back in this room. And so uh, I've said more than I even intended to say tonight. But here's what I'm really trying to get you to do. I, I want you to tune in this Saturday night at 6 or Sunday morning at 9 and 11, where our senior pastor, Sean Thornton, is going to address where Calvary stands, what we're thinking, and what we're looking toward in the future. Uh, I'm going to promise you from the outset, we don't have perfect answers. We can't tell the future any more than you can, but I want you to listen to Pastor Sean's message this weekend. I want you to listen as he gives an update to our church body. I think it's going to be fruitful for you as we hit the summer and understand what we're thinking. So again, uh, we are eager and longing for that day where we can gather here again. So that's the first thing, the return to campus. Then the subject uh, I want to hit second, and, and, and this is probably a heavier subject and, and perhaps one that, that has been dominating um, your thoughts and your, um, your own heart this week, and it certainly has been for mine, and that, um, that is the subject of what we have seen on the news when it comes to um, the killing uh, many of us witnessed as we watched on video uh, of George Floyd. Um, and I want to speak about that tonight, and I want to speak about that for a number of reasons, but but, but really, one of the first things I think we would all identify is just the, the, the horror and outrage um, and sick feeling in our stomach and this just kind of just overwhelming sense of grief that came from watching that video. 
and not just from watching that video, but, but for us and for myself, just, just watching people post about it and respond to it and, and to see how the world and people in this world and, and people of color are responding to that video, seeing their grief and seeing their pain. And I want to talk about that. I want us as a church tonight to reflect on that for just a moment. And rather than me just standing here expressing my outrage or condemning something that so many have condemned before, and of course we condemn it, and of course it's horrible, and of course we find this repugnant in every way against the image of God and the God who loved and died for every man and woman, rather than just expressing sort of outrage, my, my hope tonight, and really what I've been just praying and wrestling with the Lord, is that I could get up here in some way um, to those of you that are listening to this live stream tonight uh, and just try to shepherd us through this a little, try to not just express outrage, but try to talk about how we as a church can respond. And so I want to talk about that for a moment. But before I do, I, I really think I just have this um, weight on me to confess um, where I've really failed in the past in this space. And, and I think in this space, I, I, I've tended to fail a little bit for, for this reason. I think when a subject like this comes up, um, I, I feel grief, I, I feel sorrow, I feel anger, I feel all of the same emotions you have. And then I, I get to a space like this and, and two fears kind of pop up for me. And the two fears are, are, are this, and, and perhaps you'll recognize one or, or both of them in yourself. The, the first fear is that I'm going to get up here and I'm going to say something that I intend well but comes across wrong. But like the first fear is that I'm going to say something wrong. And there, no part of me wants to get up here and say something that causes more hurt or more damage in any way. So the first fear is saying something wrong. And then the second fear I so often feel, and, and this is just my own journey here, is that I'm not going to say enough so I'm going to hit on this subject and this subject, but I'm not going to say all of the things that need to be said or all of the things you would hope I would say. And my confession to you, and where in many ways I failed in leadership over the years, is in my capacity to say, you know what, um, the, mere, the mere fact that I'm afraid of that doesn't mean I shouldn't fight through that. Like the easiest thing in the world is to be so afraid of doing something wrong that you don't do something at all. And I think at times I've done that. And so here's what I want to say. There, there's some things I just want to share to try to shepherd and move us and have us respond in a certain way as a church tonight. And I want to confess to you from the start that, that I might say something wrong. I might not say enough. I might not go far enough. I might not say the things you're hoping I'd say or the things I need to say in this moment. And I would only ask that you recognize that I'm on this journey too trying to figure out how to do this right, trying to figure out how to shepherd and love a people and now even a people that I can't even see in front of me with my own eyeballs. So here's what I want to do tonight. Again, rather than just express outrage and condemnation, what I want to try to do is to try to shepherd us. And I want to try to do that um, with two, um, almost two phrases from Scripture that God has just been, whether it's whispering in my ear, just jackhammering on my heart this week, just these like phrases that God just keeps putting on my mind as I process all that you and I and all of us have been processing in the last week. And so the first um, phrase that, that God has just been jackhammering into my heart, like you need to get this, Brian, comes out out of the book of James, and you'll see it here in 119, and it's really just, it says, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Like, in other words, write this down, don't forget this, and then really the thing that struck me so much is everyone should be quick to listen. Everyone should be quick to listen, 
And if anything, God's been pushing on my heart this week. Uh, It is just my capacity to listen to the pain and the experience and the story and the narrative of other people who don't look like me, who don't come from backgrounds like me, who don't talk like me, who don't have the same privileges as me, who don't have the same story as me. It's my capacity to listen. And I know I'm speaking to a diverse crowd here, but, but if I might just speak for a moment to, to those of you who are like me, who, who are white and, and don't experience some of the same stories um, that people of color do in our country, that black men and women go through every day. If I can encourage you one thing tonight, it's that you would note this, like that you would write this down, that you would be quick to listen, that you would listen closely to stories that aren't like your own, to experiences that you've never walked through. You're never going to fully understand it. I'm never going to fully get it. But it's like the Lord has just been screaming at me this week. Brian, slow down and listen. Listen. The verse will go on and I'll talk about being slow to speak. And I don't think this means when something happens, we should be slow and never speak out about things. I think this is talking about those conversations where we're listening more than we're speaking. And then it goes on to say slow to become angry, which I just think um, if you're like, okay, that means we shouldn't be angry about stuff like this. I would just submit to you that I think the African-American community in this nation has been incredibly slow to anger over centuries of abuse, centuries of discrimination, centuries of pain inflicted upon them. And I think they have shown a long suffering and a patience and a courage and a faith that, that, that puts me uh, just on my knees seeking out that kind of faith. So, so I want to speak to you tonight. The first thing God's just been pushing into my spirit and my heart is this idea that we would be quick to listen. Would you do that? Would you listen to folks who are talking to you face-to-face? Would you listen to folks who are posting on social media? Don't be so quick to dismiss something just because it makes you uncomfortable. Be quick to listen. Here's the second scripture that God's just, again, just been jackhammering into my heart. The first is that we'd be quick to listen. Here's the second one out of Romans chapter 12, verse 15. It says, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Like to rejoice with people who are happy and excited about something. And then when someone is mourning, that you mourn with them. And I want to invite you again, if you're a white brother and sister with me, a brother and sister in Christ, I want to invite you to mourn with those who are mourning right now. To mourn with those who mourn means to say, if someone else is grieving, I'm going to grieve with them. I'm not going to pretend to understand perfectly. I'm not going to give them a solution that they need to do if they just saw things my way. I'm just going to mourn with them. And here's what I want to point out to you. It doesn't say mourn with people when you understand their pain perfectly. It doesn't say mourn with people when you agree that their pain is real. It just says mourn with those who mourn. That's what we're called to do. And so often, this is, my, this is how God's been working on me. I'm so often looking at pain, of not just this, but everything in the world. And I'm trying to assess and put it into a worldview and trying to think it through and answer a bunch of questions. And here's what the scriptures say. Knock it off. Mourn with people who are mourning. Weep with people who are weeping. When people are in pain, be with them in that pain. And so again, I just stand here knowing um, that I might say something wrong. I might say something incompletely. But here's what the Lord's been working on me. The Lord has been working on me, and I wonder if I can challenge anyone listening to the sound of my voice right now in the midst of everything that's going on, all of the noise, all of the pain, all of the hurt, the discrimination, the racism, everything that's happening. Would you be the type of person who is quick to listen to stories that aren't like yours, narratives and backgrounds and people who don't look like you, sound like you, talk like you, feel like you, vote like you? Would you listen to them? And when those people are mourning, would you mourn with them? Would you weep with them? Now, here's what I want to say. 
to listen to people closely and to mourn and to weep with them isn't the end of the story. That's not the only solution. It's not like if we all just did this, everything goes away and gets better. That's not how this works at all. But what I've been wrestling with and what I just want to communicate to you is perhaps for some of you, the beginning of that road starts with that, with listening closely, being quick to listen, being slow to speak, and with you being the type of person who would mourn with those who mourn. So, so again, we're, we're going to jump into Philippians 4 tonight. We're going to still study the text that we had laid out and prayed about. Um, but right now, here's what I want to do. I just want to take a moment to pray. Um, and, and perhaps you just need to wrestle before the Lord uh, with what's going on in your own heart or as it relates to this, this, this whole cultural moment we're in right now. I, I want to invite you to pray. I want to pray with you uh, that I and all of us would listen well, that we'd be quick to listen, that we would mourn with those who are mourning, and that that would set us on a road toward understanding, toward justice, toward healing, um, toward reconciliation in every way. So would you pray with me wherever you are in your living room, your bedroom, your kitchen, wherever you are right now, would you just pray with me? Um, God, we cry out to you in our grief and lament right now. God, I cry out to you knowing um, that I don't fully understand what this feels like, and yet at the same time, God, you call me to mourn, and I, I, I'm just so filled with grief and anger and rage and confusion and frustration and, and all sorts of different things. God, help me to be someone who listens well. Help me to be someone who mourns well. God, help each of us. Help us to be a church where people are heard and seen and noticed, where people who look different and sound different and vote different and talk different and everyone is heard and noticed within your body. God, help us to grieve well together. Help us to seek justice where we can as a church. Help us find reconciliation. God, we know you're leading us toward a future in heaven where racial reconciliation is the ultimate and eternal reality. God, help us to live into that now. God, help me. Help all of us. Father, I pray for those who are hurting tonight, for those who are scared, for those who are in pain, for those who are angry. God, I pray your Holy Spirit would be with them, and I pray our hearts would be knitted together with them. I pray this in Christ's name, the healing one, the resurrected one, the one who's able to do a miracle beyond what we could possibly imagine in our lifetimes and in our time. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, thanks for going on that journey with me. And again, I, I invite you to continue to wrestle with, with listening well and, and grieving well as we go into this. And then uh, I, I do want to turn our attention toward the Word of God. And I think even as we go through tonight, we'll see how this kind of plays out in the, the, the texture of, of Philippians chapter 4. Because I want us to turn there now. I want us to see uh, it begins this way again with your Bibles in Philippians 4. It says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters... Uh, of whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown. I, I love that, that he calls his brothers and sisters his joy and his crown. Like the church, these people he loved are, are like the people he is so in love with. He is so proud of them. He lifts them up. He can't wait to be back together. I think most of us know what Paul feels like right now. Like these people he adores so much. It, it goes on, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Judea and I plead with Syntyche that they would be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are written in the book of life. Now, isn't it interesting that, that, that we're really talking about the theme of racial reconciliation and, and how we can grieve with those who grieve, how we can listen closely? And then isn't it fascinating that, that what we just read here is about these two women who are fighting, these two women who have something between them. And, and Paul's great concern here after saying, stand firm in the Lord that part of standing firm in the Lord is that there's this unity that happens where these two factions who have been separated unify and reconcile. I just think that's a fascinating thing. 
Like, I think it's important for us not to just blow past this and not recognize that reconciliation, that healing wounds, that healing division, that healing strife is not some peripheral thing to the Bible, but it's right at the center of the gospel, that the gospel is a gospel of reconciliation, not just of us to God, but of us to one another. God's not just redeeming and restoring our relationship to him. He's redeeming and restoring our relationship with each other. And this is what Paul is pleading with, not just the idea of reconciliation, but he calls out these two women by name. Uh, imagine being these two women, hearing that, going, okay, if I'm really going to follow Jesus, I've got to create healing and reconciliation within a divided and tense relationship. It goes on this way. We'll, we'll see in chapter four, it says, or chapter four, verse four, it says, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Now, there's a famous verse in, in the book of Philippians. It, it's this one. It's probably this one and, and the ultimate sports verse, which is Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? Like, it's those two. Uh, but this is one of these famous verses. And if you're looking for one to memorize, like, it doesn't get much easier than this because it repeats a word. So you only have to memorize that once, right? Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. And I want to talk to you about that word that gets repeated, that word rejoice, because I think it's so rich and powerful. And I think if you could really start to get your head and mind around what it means to rejoice, it could change your entire life, your entire outlook. So here's how I want to do this. I'm, I'm going to nerd out twice in this sermon tonight, okay? So, so I'm going to lead you down this road of like nerdy Bible teacher stuff. And so if that's your jam, like pay attention real closely. And if that's not your thing at all, Stay with me, okay? So I want to show you this word, um, rejoice, and I want to show it to you in, in a concordance. A concordance is this, is this kind of very thick book. It's actually on the internet. It's digital now. But it's a very thick book with every word found in the Bible, not in the English language, but in the Greek and Hebrew the Bible is written in. So I want to show you this verse, uh, or this word, rejoice, in the concordance. So this is from Strong's Concordance, the big, thick book with all the Bible words, and it's going to show us the Greek word here, Cairo. You'll see it spelled with an X, and that's because in the Greek language, when it's translated over into English letters, the X is actually the letter Chi, so it gives us Cairo. So Cairo, which is the word rejoice, so when it says rejoice in the Lord always, it's Cairo in the Lord always. And here's what it says. Cairo is a cognate with charis, which means grace. So like the word rejoice and the word grace in the Bible are connected. They have similar meanings. They come from the same word. Properly to delight, and it's defining it in God's grace, is to rejoice. Literally, to experience God's grace and favor. To be conscious and glad for his grace. So in other words, that the word Paul uses to say rejoice, this word Cairo, it's connected to the word grace. It's connected to the word grace, which means this gift. We understand God's good gift, his good love for us, his good grace for us. Like in other words, here's what I want to try to point out. To properly delight in God's grace is to rejoice. It is literally to experience his grace and be conscious of his grace. To be conscious of all the good things God has given us is what it means for us to rejoice. But let me put it to you this way, in a way that will probably make sense. Um, so, so I have a two-year-old daughter, and uh, again, I'm often uh, accused of using her too much in sermons, and guilty as charged. She's adorable. Get over it. Um, but she is two years old. Her name is Grace. And, and I want to tell you this amazing story. The other, the other morning, we, we, we got down from her nap, and she came down, um, and she comes downstairs, and she picks up her deck of playing cards. Now, here's what you need to know about her playing cards. She's two years old. She has no idea how to play any game. 
games with the playing cards. She just loves to pick them up and throw them onto the ground. But here's what you need to know about the playing cards. They're not just like a bicycle set of playing cards. They are playing cards with Disney princesses all over them. So she'll pick up a card and go, ooh, Aurora, ooh, Cinderella, Snow White, and then her ultimate favorite, Belle from Beauty and the Beast, and she'll look through the playing cards. And she'll love this. We come down this morning, and this is the story. She walks downstairs. She goes over to the place where the playing cards are. She picks up the playing cards and looks at these. Now, you need to know, she's looked at them 100 times. We've had these playing cards for months. This isn't some new gift or some new toy or some new experience for her. And she looks at these things she's played with for months and holds them up. And I'll never forget this. She looks down and goes, wow, wow, ooh, she's so excited about these playing cards. And it was amazing. Because sometimes we expect a kid to get wowed and excited by something new and exciting and dynamic. But that's not what was happening here. She went to something she has had forever. Something that is so, she's so, like a quarter of her life, she has had these playing cards. And yet she sees them and goes, wow. And you know what, that was instructive for me. And it was instructive for me because I thought to myself, like, what if I started doing that with everything in my life? Like, what if I started becoming the type of person who was wowed and amazed by everything rather than taking everything for granted? What if I became the type of person who was so experiencing God's grace and conscious and glad for his grace that I was wowed with everything? Like, what if I was the guy who woke up every morning and went, wow, I have breath in my lungs. Wow, I'm alive today. I get to live another day and not everyone gets that privilege. Wow, I'm alive today and I live in a house and my refrigerator's full of food and every time I go to the light switch and flick it on, lights go on everywhere. It's incredible. What if I became that type of person who was just wowed by every good and perfect gift that comes from the Father above? What if I flipped through my phone and recognized that I have more contacts in my phone than I could possibly speak to in a day? What if I was wowed by the fact that every time I pray, there's a God in heaven who actually listens to us? What if I was wowed by the fact that when I open the word of God, I actually get to hear what the God of the universe has to say? You see, here's what it means to rejoice in the Lord. What it means to rejoice in the Lord is that I don't take anything for granted that I'm so aware of God's grace. I'm so aware of all the good things he's given me. And it just makes me go, wow, all the time. Uh, Like, here's how I put it for you, for those of you taking notes tonight, that the happiest people you know take nothing for granted. The happiest people in your life are so overwhelmed with all the good things that God has given them, and they take nothing for granted because they know they don't deserve it. They know they haven't earned it. They know it's God's grace. They don't take their salvation for granted. They don't take God's word for granted. They don't take God's presence for granted, and they don't take God's blessing, every little blessing he's put into their life for granted. Those are the happiest people you know. And for the person out there who is maybe new to our live stream or new new to YA who's going, don't you mean joyful, not happy? The real truth is I don't. I really do believe happiness and delight and joy and gladness and rejoicing are all words in the Bible that are used to describe the same reality that our happiness, our joy, our delight is rooted in God and not the things of this world. We're rooted in God as the provider of our blessings rather than the gifts he's given us. And so when I say that the happiest people you know take nothing for granted, I want you to think about those people. I want you to consider what it would look like for you to be that type of person 
who takes nothing in this world for granted, who every morning wakes up recognizing that today is a gift, that God has given you good gifts, and to rejoice is to be aware in every moment that the very breath coming into your lungs is a gift from God. And if you don't take it for granted, you'll become one of the happiest people you know as well. Here's how it goes on. It goes on this way in uh, verse five. It says, let your gentleness be evident to all. It's this interesting little verse, like rejoice always. I'll say it again, rejoice. And then he gives this command, let your gentleness be evident to all. If you're actually reading in the English Standard Version, the ESV, which I know some of you read out of, you'll notice that it doesn't say gentleness. It actually says reasonableness. And this is this Greek word that could kind of go either way. And you might think, well, that's a really different word than gentleness, but I don't actually think it is. Because I want you to think about it. Think about the most unreasonable person you know. Maybe you're sitting in the living room with the most unreasonable person you know. Don't point at them right now, but think about them in your mind. Kind of keep it private to yourself. Think about that person right now. The most unreasonable person you know is not a gentle person, right? Like they're so caught up in their ideology. They're so rigid in the way they think and talk that they're not gentle and kind and gracious with people. But then think about the people who are really reasonable, really thoughtful, really nuanced in their thinking, who aren't ideologues, who aren't extremists on one end or the other. They tend to be gentle. And gentle doesn't mean weak. And gentle doesn't mean they don't have some intellectual firepower or ability to have a strong opinion. It just means that because they're so reasonable, they're gentle with people. And here's what I need you to remember. Some of us need to remember this in this season, that to be reasonable, to be gentle, is a Christian virtue. It is a fruit of the Spirit. It is something that followers of Jesus are called to demonstrate. And I need to say this in case anyone needs to hear this. Some of the activity that we have seen surrounding the government shutdowns, this disease, what's going on in our world right now, some of it from Christians has not demonstrated gentleness. And maybe this does not apply to you. Maybe you don't need to hear this, but maybe someone needs to hear this tonight. Um, There's a way of reacting to what happens in this world that is full of reasonableness and gentleness, and then there's the opposite of that. And I would just question for some of you, like, like for some of you, you hear what the government is doing, what they're opening up or what they're not, or the restrictions or not. And for some of you, there's this reasonable, this is, there's this gentleness of, okay, I understand they're in a tough spot and they're trying to figure out how to make good decisions for millions of people. And, and how do we honor that? And then there's a way of doing that that is angry and bitter and loud and not at all gentle, not at all reasonable. When it comes to um, things like wearing masks, there's, there's these two sides, and they're so angry all the time, and there's all these people, and I'm not even here to solve that debate. I'm not even here to say what you should believe or not believe about that, as much as to say, in that discussion, in that debate online, let your gentleness be evident to all. There's some people who think our church should just open up today. We should defy the government. We should just do what we want to do. We should just go for it and push forward And some of those voices are reasonable and thoughtful and just trying to encourage and submit their opinion. And we respect that. But then again, some of the voices have just become so harsh and angry in our culture. They've become so unreasonable that they miss entirely this command of God in Scripture. Like, here's something I want to put to you tonight. I want to continue to challenge and push us in this area. I want to talk about it because if gentleness is something we need to look at, I want us to remind remind ourselves of a few things. Number one, slander is not a fruit of the Spirit. Like, like if you're angry at some opponent, some political person you disagree with, or some other individual, or someone who posted, slander is not a fruit of the Spirit. You dunking on someone on social media is not a fruit of the Spirit. 
You showing yourself and how awesome you are and how terrible they are is not a fruit of the Spirit. Condescension's not a fruit of the Spirit. You speaking down to people, you belittling people because they don't agree with you, you looking at people online who don't agree with you and being condescending to them, whether you say it online or you just say it to your spouse or your roommates, it's not a fruit of the Spirit. You know what else isn't a fruit of the Spirit? Winning. Winning isn't a fruit of the Spirit. You winning a debate, you winning an argument, you seeming better than the other person, you being right all the time is not a fruit of the Spirit. And finally, cynicism is not a fruit of the Spirit. Like this cynical, jaded view that I think can happen in so many of us where we just go, everyone's the worst and I hate everyone and we just become angry and bitter and cynical. It is not fruit of the Spirit. Like I wanna remind you that when we hear about the ninefold fruit of the Spirit, gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Gentleness is fruit of the Spirit. If nothing about your life screams gentleness, I just need you to do some examination of your heart. To be gentle, to be reasonable, isn't something for soft, weak people. It's for courageous, strong people who walk after Jesus. Here's how we see it with Dallas Willard. He says it this way in his book called The Allure of Gentleness, which I would recommend to you. He says, the means of our communication needs to be gentle because gentleness also characterizes the subject of our communication. What we are seeking to defend or explain is Jesus himself, who is a gentle, loving shepherd. If we are not gentle in how we present the good news, how will people encounter the gentle and loving Messiah that we point to? I want to encourage you toward gentleness. I want to encourage you toward reasonableness in your debates and your discussions and the way you talk about other people in this world. May gentleness define you. It goes on this way in the back half of verse 5. It says, the Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. So if rejoice in the Lord always, I'll say it again, rejoice is a famous part. This is one of the other ones, right? Don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, present your requests before God. What a famous, well-known verse. But here's what I want to do tonight. I want to point out something that, that I've always just found fascinating about this part of Scripture and how it fits together and how we read it and understand it. And in order to do so, I, I told you I'm going to nerd out twice tonight. Here's, here's the second part. So, so we already looked at a concordance, uh, and that's all right. We kind of looked at that. Uh, tonight, I want to nerd out a second time. I'm going to take you on a roundabout route here, okay? And so if you're going, where's he going with this? I promise I'm going somewhere that's going to land us back here. But in order to do that, I need to talk to you about something. I need to talk to you about the wild and strange world of how the Bible got to us. And I don't mean the holy word of God written through people. I don't mean how God transmitted it. I mean how you received the hardback Bible sitting on your, your, your lap right now or the Bible you have on your phone. I want to talk to you about how it got here. In order to do that, I want, you to show, I want to show you um, this is a copy of Philippians. This is one of the earliest ones. This is a second century copy of Philippians. And you'll notice a few things right away. And again, stick with me here. You'll notice first it's not written in English. It's written in Greek. Koine Greek, which is the common Greek of the time. It's written in the Greek language. The next thing you'll notice is that it's written, if you know anything about Greek, in all capital letters. So it's written one in Greek, two is all capital letters. And then the third thing you'll notice in this big old section of Philippians here is that there aren't verse numbers. There aren't chapter numbers, and there aren't even spaces between the letters, words, and paragraphs. You see how it just goes on continuously with no breaks whatsoever? And there's a reason they would do this. 
The reason they would do this, the reason they wrote this way is because paper wasn't a thing. Papyrus or scrolls that they were writing on, they needed to get as many letters as possible. So the idea of breaking for a paragraph never occurred to anyone because you want to be efficient with the amount of space you have. So if you were in the first century and you received the letter to the Philippians, this is what it would look like what it was. It would be this long letter, no spaces, no verses, no chapters, and likely you didn't know how to read, so someone would stand up and they would read the entirety of the letter to you, and you would hear it. You would listen to the entire letter, which is this beautiful thing because you get to hear all of Philippians and not just little bits and pieces, and it's this wonderful thing. But then here's what started to happen. As the world started to mature, and as people started to go forward, and more people started to be able to read, and society started teaching people to read, there began this desire to not just have this, where it was just this long stretch, but people wanted to start understanding little bits and pieces. They wanted to start reading it for themselves. And you can imagine how frustrating this would be. If I was up here tonight and I said, open up to Philippians, you're like, great, I know what that letter is. And I said, go about 78% of the way down to this line. You would be extraordinarily confused. And that's what happened to so many Christians in the Middle Ages. They started to say, okay, we need some way of talking about this. And so here's what occurred. I want to introduce you to a man named Robert Esteen. Can we show Bobby right here? All right, here's Robert Esteen. He lived in the 15th century, and he was trying to make one of these concordances I showed you earlier, where you could reference certain verses in certain places. And so he decided, I'm going to take these long stretches of Scripture, and I'm going to break them up into chapters and I'm going to break them up into verses. And he did this, the, the, the legend, the rumor says he did this on a horseback ride from one place to another. And the idea is that he was writing, and he probably did was stop at a hotel or in a lodge every night and try to divide up the scripture. But what's the kind of joke is that sometimes the idea is he was like bouncing along on the horse and would randomly just break up verses as he was. Because this is what happens. See, this gentleman brings us verses and chapters. 1,400 years after the Bible was completed. And so this is a really interesting thing. When we read our Bibles, what we're reading is it broken out by chapter and verse. But here's what I want to point out tonight. Three different things. Number one, verse numbers are not original or divinely inspired. Meaning, verse numbers weren't in the original text. Paul wasn't writing Romans or Philippians and adding verse numbers, and that was added later. Meaning it wasn't divinely inspired, but here's what I want you to know. Verse numbers are often or usually useful. They're usually useful. Verse numbers are usually helpful. They're usually helpful for us because it allows us to reference things. So when I say Philippians 4.13, you know what that is because of verse numbers. They're usually helpful. But here's the last things. Verse numbers are sometimes misleading. Sometimes verse numbers actually mislead us to misunderstand the point of a text because we get so caught up in the verses that we miss the flow of what's actually happening. So I promised you this roundabout journey we took through ancient manuscripts and a guy in the 15th century would bring us back here. Here's what I want to show you. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. Here's, here's it as you know it. Don't be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request before God. That's Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. I want to show you Philippians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, 5b, the end of it. If the verse didn't cut off right here. If the verse went here, if this was the beginning of verse 6, here's how you'd read this. The Lord is near. Don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, present your request before God. And that might seem so subtle and so small, but think about the difference between the two ways of reading this. If all you're doing is reading verse 6 in isolation on its own, you're just reading, don't be anxious about anything. 
You're like, I'm worried about stuff. Don't be worried about it. But instead, if you read it without the verse numbers, and I actually have a Bible that has been given to me where there's no verse numbers in it. You just read it all the way through as it was originally. You would read, the Lord is near. Don't be anxious about anything. It would be like this. Imagine someone in your household after the live stream is shut off tonight um, gets into some kind of medical crisis. They have a heart attack or something starts happening to their body and they're terrified and they collapse to the floor. And so you grab the phone and you call 911 and they send the ambulance and the EMTs rushing over to your house and you're bent down with them and you're trying to comfort them and they're so scared and they're so worried and they're so concerned about their body and you could say this to them, don't be anxious, don't be worried, it's gonna be okay, just, just we'll, we'll call the EMT, we'll call the ambulance, don't worry about it. That would be one kind of experience for the person laying on the ground, right? But what if the experience on the ground was the ambulance is near, the EMTs are right outside our house. Don't be anxious right now because help is on the way. See, this is the difference. This is how verse numbers can throw us off because what we should link to the beginning of don't be anxious is the idea that the Lord is near. See, here's how I wanna break it apart for you. The command here, the command isn't don't be anxious because there's nothing to fear. The command is don't be anxious because the Lord is near. This is what's so significant for us to see. The command to not be anxious isn't because there's nothing scary or nothing to fear out there. The command that you would not be anxious is because God is with you. He's present. Help is on the way. He's in the midst of this. He hasn't abandoned you. He hasn't forsaken you. He is closer than your very breath to you right now. And we forget this to our peril. This is the idea. The command is for us not to be anxious because the Lord is near. I want you to see how it continues on this way in verse 7. It says, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You know, this week at Calvary, some of our pastors and staff have been praying for a family that's just been hurting tremendously. And without sharing all the details of their situation, it was one of those situations that has just caused me at various times to, to weep and be overwhelmed and just be so deeply moved by the pain this family is going through as it relates to their children um, and, and some of the stuff. It's just so complicated. And yeah, I, I just, it's been difficult. It's been overwhelming. And I don't know if you've ever been in this type of situation, perhaps you have, where you're praying for a family and praying for their pain and praying for the loss that they're going through. And you're not even sure what to pray. You're not even sure how to pray. Like, what do I pray for someone who's lost so much, who's grieving so deeply, who's walking through so much suffering? And here's what I found myself praying, that the peace of God, which transcends understanding, would guard their hearts in Christ Jesus. Uh, like, like, I need you to hear this. I'm not praying that they would come to understand why they're going through so much pain and see God's plan in it. See, there's actually a difference between this. The prayer here isn't, I pray that you would open their eyes to see all that you're doing, God, and then they would understand fully, and then they wouldn't be worried anymore. That's not the prayer here. The prayer for a family in the deepest parts of grief, in the most kinds of suffering, is this. Listen, that you would have a peace that you can't even explain that you would have a peace that you can't even understand. You can't even put your finger on why you feel peaceful. You just know that you do. But like, here's the way I wanna put it to some of you tonight, and perhaps you would take this into the next grief you have, that you can't hold on to the peace of God until you let go of your need to understand. That you cannot hold on to God's peace if you need to understand. Because the peace that's promised for you is a peace that transcends all understanding. 
It's a peace that completely goes over your head where you can't even figure out why you feel peaceful. And yet God's Holy Spirit is resting on you in such a way that brings peace to your body and your soul and your mind and your spirit. And if you insist on understanding everything, if you insist on knowing the reason, if you insist in being in control, you abandon that peace that God wants to bring you. Here's how it continues, verse 8 and verse 9. We'll, we'll, we'll close with verse 8 and then um, get into verse 9. We'll, we'll close out, um, pardon me, with verse 9. Verse 8, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Here's a very simple command here. The very simple command is that the things that dominate your heart and dominate your mind and dominate your thoughts and dominate your hours and dominate your cell phone and dominate your laptop and dominate your television screen, let them be these things. Let them be these things that are noble and right and true and pure and lovely and good. Like this is what Paul is commanding us. This isn't a suggestion in scripture for you to have a nicer life. It is a command of God on your life. And here's why. Because what controls your mind, what consumes your mind, controls your life. What consumes your mind will control everything about your life. And if you choose to have your mind consumed with things that are foul and things that are vulgar and things that are inappropriate and things that are angry and things that are bitter and things that are twisted, it will control your life. I talked about last week controlling your inputs. The music you listen to, the people you follow on Instagram, the people that you listen to on podcasts or on cable news, the things you look at, the things you see on your phone, the television shows you choose to watch. Uh, again, I'm just never going to be the pastor that tries to draw the line and say, this is the line. Christians over here, non-Christians over there. But my pleading with you is always going to be, make sure there is a line. Make sure there's somewhere where you say, I will not let that consume my mind because it will control my life. I will not let extremist voices consume my mind because it will control my life. I will not let foul and vulgar music consume my mind because it will control my life. I want to plead with you to control your inputs, to think about what's going into your brain this summer, this season, as we're in all of this stress. You do not need things consuming your mind that will control your life, that are leading you astray. But rather, you can choose to consume your mind with good things, with things that are good and noble and true and pure. And I don't just mean Christian content and Christian material. It's good to listen to songs and it's good to listen to sermons and it's good to listen to Christian ideas and podcasts, but it's more than that. It's choosing to absorb good news. It's choosing to be out in nature and see God's creation. It's choosing to sit down with good people who fill your cup and encourage your soul because what consumes your mind will ultimately control your life. And then I want to show you this final verse here. Verse 9, it says, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. So I want to put out two things about this verse. The, the first is actually a word. If you tuned into the live stream last week, you, you saw it last week, but I, I want to show you that it pops up again here. It's that whatever you've seen from me, put it into practice. Practice. I, I love this word. I love the word practice when it comes to following Jesus because the idea is you practice things that you're not good at yet. You practice things that you're trying to get better at. Do you know what your goal is in following Jesus? It's not that you just decide to do something and boom, you're good at it. It's that you have to practice at it. Like for some of you, you've never had much of a prayer life. And then in quarantine, you tried to pray and it just didn't work the first time. And it's not because prayer doesn't work. It's because you're out of practice. 
Some of you have tried to read your Bible and you open it up and you're like, well, that's confusing. And then you throw it away. And it's because you're out of practice. It takes practice to pray well. It takes practice to read your Bible. It takes practice to do evangelism well. It takes practice to do silence well. I, I confessed last week that I've been just struggling with just like sitting in silence, that I always have podcasts and worship music and sermons and all that stuff in my ears. And so I, I tried to practice this week during my, my part of the 24 Hours of Prayer initiative. It, it was late Tuesday afternoon, and I went to a park near my house, and, and I didn't have headphones, and I didn't have like a sheet to pray through. I just said, I'm going to go sit in silence. And so I found a bench at the park and I sat there and I was bewildered. And so my mind started going to all of the things I had to do and I worked out all of the problems and when I was going to go shopping and when I was going to complete this project and when I was going to do this email and when I was going to say to this person and, and I worked through all my problems and all my stresses and all my things. And then I looked down at the clock and I was seven minutes in to my one hour prayer time. And there I am sitting in silence and it was difficult. It was excruciating. It was hard. It didn't come natural to me. It wasn't an easy thing to me because I was out of practice. But that's what it means for us to follow Jesus. For us to follow Jesus isn't just like there's a command in the Bible and boom, we do it easily. It's we become practicers who are constantly trying to improve, constantly trying to grow because that's what we're told. Like whatever you received, put it into practice. And then here's what I want to point out. There's this connection here where it says, whatever you put into practice, the God of peace will be with you. Like, I don't want you to miss this at the very end here. I don't want you to miss that there's a connection between you putting the obedience and the commands of God into practice and God's peace. I don't want you to miss that these two things are linked. It's not just like do some things, and by the way, God will be with you and he'll have his peace. These two things are connected to one another. So in other words, how I want to close is this, that if you have no intention to practice, you should have no ex expectation of peace. If you have no intention of practicing what God has laid on your heart, what Jesus is calling you toward, whatever spiritual disciplines, whatever things God is trying to move you forward, if you have no intention of putting those things into practice, you shouldn't have the expectation of peace. Like, I just worry that there are millions of Christians who have never experienced God's peace because they've never put his law into practice, because they've never put discipleship into practice, because they've never put spiritual disciplines into practice. See, we put this into practice because it connects with our peace. That the practice isn't so we'll earn God's salvation. That was given to us fully, finally, and freely through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We put these into practice so that we can experience God's peace. And here's how I want to close out tonight. I just want to invite you um, to consider before the Lord what you might need to put into practice. What's the thing you're struggling with? Tonight, I told you, sitting in silence is a discipline that I'm just trying to work on and get a little better in, in my own heart and life and story. And so I just want to ask you, what, what's that for you tonight? Like, what's the thing you need to put into practice? What's the thing that you know you need to work on, that you need to grow in, that you need to try and fail at and get better at as you follow after Jesus? Because I believe that is the road. That is the trail marker toward you finding peace. I want to encourage you to take everything you've learned as we've studied Philippians, to not just think about it, to not just hear it, to not just enjoy it, but to put it into practice so that even this summer, you might know God's peace. Let's pray. God, thank you for tonight, and God, thank you for your word. God, thanks for challenging and convicting me. Thanks for moving in my own heart. Thanks for moving in the hearts of the people who are watching right now. God, I pray for each of us as we try to put into practice what you have for us. God, that we would find your peace, a peace that transcends all understanding. God, I pray that over our hearts. I pray that over our lives. And I pray that in finding peace, we would rejoice. 
that we would be a grateful people who take nothing for granted. God, fill us with your joy. Fill us with your peace this summer. God, I'm closing my eyes here and just imagining the day where I'll open them and I'll see hundreds, maybe even thousands of young adults here. And I believe, God, that you wanna bring that to pass in our day and in our time. And so, God, I pray that you would make us the type of people who put your word into practice so that we might see that fruit in our time. God, help us to trust you. Fill us with your joy and peace. In Christ's name, amen.